Well, please turn your Bibles, uh, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This morning we are considering uh, the keys of the kingdom. This is a metaphor for the, the duties and the authority that Christ gave to the apostles. And we see reference to these keys both in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18, among, among other places. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Please turn your attention to the reading of God's word, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We also turn a few pages over in your Bibles to Matthew 18. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So a couple of chapters over, we see um, Jesus saying a very similar thing and also referencing uh, part of the duties that come with these keys of the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, please turn also in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are reciting together Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31, which consists of question and answers 83 through 85. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Uh, Question 83 asks, What are the keys of the kingdom? the preaching of the Holy Gospel, and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Question 84 asks, how does, the preaching of, uh, the, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, 
the kingdom of heaven is open by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Question 85 asks, How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated and personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Well, boys and girls, uh, what are the three main sections of this catechism? Yes, Isaiah. Guilt, grace, and gratitude, yes. And, of course, we are in the grace section. And what is true faith? Violet. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And uh, where do we find the content of faith? Noel? Apostles' Creed. What's the benefit of faith? Yes. Yes. Uh, God, Christ's righteousness, yes. Uh, but um, uh, we are righteous in Christ before God. Exactly. Now, where does this faith come from? Where does faith come from? Ezekiel? The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use to create faith? Noel? The Word and the Sacraments. Very good. Yes, the, the Holy Spirit uses the Word to create faith, and the sacraments help confirm that faith. And we've been looking at these two sacraments of the church, the uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and now we come to another very important doctrine that's related to the word and the sacraments, which is the keys of the kingdom, or which are the keys of the kingdom. Now, this is the last Lord's Day of the Grace section. So if you step back for a moment, notice how the Grace section essentially has been structured around faith. What is faith? What is the content of faith? What is the benefit of faith? Where does faith come from? And now the keys of the kingdom is all about uh, the authority of the church to affirm and recognize one's profession of faith. One of my um, former professors, uh, theologian Michael Horton, has a, I think a, a pretty profound quote. He, 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 as he's thinking about sort of American Christianity, he says, you know, we are commanded not to become self-feeders who mature beyond the nurture of the church, but to submit ourselves to the preaching, teaching, and oversight um, of the shepherds whom God has placed over us in Christ. 
Now, I think a common view today is, is one in which we view the church as a congregating of individual self-feeders. When it comes to our spiritual nourishment, we feed ourselves, and we go to church just to kind of find community. We don't really need the church. We don't need their preaching. We don't need their teaching. We don't need oversight. We just kind of come as individuals, and we leave as individuals, and we feed ourselves. That's a temptation in our own day and age, a very individualistic age. Well, this Lord's Day, these passages tell us that we are not self-feeders because Christ gave these keys of the kingdom to his church. And so the church is not merely a social club where we enjoy community. The church actually has authority. And we are called to be under that authority, which is rooted in this doctrine, the keys of the kingdom. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at uh, how the keys are given to the church. Uh, we're going to look at both of these keys individually. So the key of preaching the Holy Gospel and the key of, of Christian discipline towards repentance. And then we'll conclude Lastly, by looking at how this is connected to church membership. So you'll see in both uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus is explicitly giving these keys of the kingdom to the apostles. Matthew 16, he's giving it to Peter, but Peter's a representative of, of the apostles. And what are these keys? What are these keys? I just mentioned it, but what are these keys? Preaching the gospel, and what's the second key? Discipline, right? Discipline towards repentance. And Jesus speaks of these keys as those keys which loose and bind, those keys which open and shut. So Christ gave these keys originally to the apostles, but by extension we know that in this age, after the, the last apostles died, he gave these keys to pastors and elders, consistories. So remember last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 4.1 where Paul says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Apostles, but then by extension pastors and elders are stewards of the mysteries of God. And last week we looked at how that term mysteries refers to the word and the sacraments. So the consistory is called to oversee the word and the sacraments. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians 4.1. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 refers to the church as a household. And so Christ has employed stewards in his household and has granted them authority. As one author puts it, uh, the church's decisions and actions have real authority but not final authority. Stewards are not masters. We have to recognize that distinction. Stewards possess real authority. Though they can err, they nevertheless do possess real authority. Or to switch metaphors, Paul also refers to officers in the church as ambassadors. An ambassador does not create policy, but announces the king's policy. And this is why the church has declarative authority. Meaning the church does not have authority to create new laws, new policy. Rather, the church only has authority to declare the word of God, and we have to take that seriously. We can't go beyond the word of God, otherwise we are going beyond the authority that Christ has given us. So the church does have authority, but it's limited to the word of God. We are ambassadors of God declaring the policies of the kingdom. So another way to think about these two keys uh, is 
is thinking of them in terms of law and gospel. The church has the authority to preach the gospel, but then Christian discipline is really the church announcing and enforcing the law of God. In one sense, we're all under discipline, discipline in terms of instruction. We all are under the law of God, the tutelage of the law. If you think of 2 Timothy 3, Paul says that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be uh, equipped for every good work. That's the positive aspect of discipline. So you can think of it as discipleship. We all should be under the tutelage of God's law, corrected, rebuked, trained, so that we're equipped to walk in all manner of good work. And so the church has the authority to announce and proclaim the law and the gospel. It's another way to think of these two keys. So Christ gives these keys to the church. So let's focus a little bit on, on these two keys individually. So you notice that first key is the preaching of the gospel. And this preaching of the gospel opens the kingdom. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel. Not just to unbelievers, but also to believers. It's interesting that, that Paul, in Romans chapter 1, as he's writing to this church in Rome, he says that he desires to visit this church in Rome so that he might be able to preach the gospel to those who are also in Rome. He's talking to believers. He's eager to come to Rome so he can preach the gospel to believers, which shows us that the gospel is not just for evangelism for unbelievers. The gospel is for us. We need to come to church to hear the gospel. That's what we considered earlier this morning. This makes sense, right? If we remember that paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude. If gratitude is the main motivation in the Christian life, well, begs the question, what are we grateful for? We're grateful for the gospel. And so if we don't repeatedly hear the gospel, we're not going to have any wind in our sails to obey. Now, one of the main ways in which we see this key exercised in practically in the church is, yes, through the preaching of the word, but specifically in the declaration of pardon. All of the, the Reformation liturgies had a declaration of pardon or absolution. And the reason why uh, Reformed churches from 500 years ago onward included a, a time in which um, people heard that their sins were forgiven heard in absolution is because they recognize that Christ gave to the church this key, this key of proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And you'll notice that, uh, well, it's interesting also that, you know, John Calvin, when he speaks about this, this part of our liturgy, this declaration of pardon or this absolution, he, he says that Christ when he told the apostles to forgive sins, he, he, he was not giving to them what is his own right. You know, Christ alone has the right to forgive sins. But when he calls the apostles, and by extension pastors and elders, to forgive sins, what he's telling them to do is to announce in the name of Christ the forgiveness of sins. So I, as a minister, don't have the power or the ability to forgive your sins. I'm not your mediator. I'm not your priest. But I am an ambassador, a steward, employed by Christ with his authority to exercise this key. And so, again, when I, when I declare that, that, that pardon over you in our first service, that's not just uh, us going through the motions. It's not just because we want to hang on to this piece of tradition. We realize that Christ gave this key to the church. And you'll notice that I say pretty much the same thing every Sunday, and that's intentional. I say to you, 
I declare uh, to you in the name of Jesus Christ and on the authority of the word of God. So this is not me forgiving your sins. This is Christ's announcement. Again, this is not my authority. This is not our authority. Ultimately, this is the word of God who say, uh, that, sa- that says to you that your sins are forgiven. And I raise my hand too. And that signifies to you as a congregation that this is not me speaking as Caleb, as a private individual. This is me speaking in my office as a minister of the gospel, as an ambassador of God, assuring you that you are forgiven for the sake of Christ. The declaration of pardon is very, very intentional. It's us as a church utilizing this key that Christ has given us. And of course, we hear the gospel and the preaching of the word as well, but this declaration of pardon is is so helpful and and important for us in in our life together. Um, So that's the first key. Uh, What's the second key that Christ gives the church? Christian discipline, yes. Well, I should say, just to back up for a moment, notice how the catechism says that the kingdom is opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel. I think it's, 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 it's uh, pretty obvious how the kingdom is opened by the preaching of the gospel. But how is the kingdom shut by the preaching of the gospel? Sean? Okay. Okay. Yeah, those things are definitely definitely on the right right track. Um, what was it? Excommunication? Um, n- not exactly. We'll get to that. It's, it's, it's kind of a more obvious answer than than it may it may seem. But th- think of when 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 you hear the declaration pardon that if you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are no longer under the wrath of God. That announcement contains an implicit shutting the kingdom because it says that if you don't trust in Christ, your sins are not forgiven. You're still under the wrath of God. And so that's what, what the catechism is getting at, and that's what it says here in the second half of question answer 84, uh, that if we refuse to repent and, and believe in Christ, then we are still in our sins, and we're still under the wrath of God. So there is that warning to unbelievers that, okay, if you don't repent, you don't trust, you don't believe, well, then your sin problem isn't taken away. You're still under the wrath of God. So the second key is church discipline. Uh, church, di- uh, church discipline. As I mentioned before, there's a positive aspect of church discipline as church discipleship or instruction where we are, are instructing the law of God. And that's why liturgically we hear God's law every week because we are all under discipline constantly in that sense. We all need to be reminded of God's law, gaze into the mirror of God's law. Uh, and that's good, a good thing for us to do. However, there are times when we live in unrepentance and the church needs to enforce God's law and warn individuals of what will happen if they continue down that route, which is, which is the type of church discipline that the catechism is referencing. So in Matthew 18, what are the steps of, of this church discipline when uh, someone is in sin? What, what steps does Jesus give us? 
talk to them individually, then if, if that doesn't lead to repentance, what should you do? Right. Take one or two along. And if repentance doesn't come about, what should you do then? Noel, tell it to the church. And if still there's no repentance, what do you do? You treat him as a, a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning an, an unbeliever. So there are four steps here. One to one, bring one or two others, and then tell it to the church, let him be to you a Gentile or a tax collector. Now if you look with me at question and answer 85, question and answer 85 are essentially, is essentially summarizing the steps of Matthew 18. And it summarizes them in a very helpful way. Question and answer uh, 85 puts these four steps under two main categories or headings. Personal admonition and corporate admonition. So it talks about personally going to that person for the sake of repentance. If that doesn't work, then you go to the church for corporate admonition. The catechism interprets Jesus' words of tell it to the church as tell it to the church officers, the elders and pastors, the consistory. And therefore the consistory gets involved and seeks repentance. And if still there's no repentance, then they're excluded from the sacraments. And that's where, the, that's where the term excommunication comes from. They're, they're um, barred from communion. So those are the, the, the steps that Jesus gives us. Uh, question answer 85 summarizes those steps for us. And uh, when, when Jesus says we treat them as an unbeliever um, or treat them as a Gentile or tax collector, you know, we still evangelize them. We don't shun them. We, we still have a relationship with them. Just like we would treat, we treat them just like we would treat really any other unbeliever. Uh, we seek to, to pursue them with the gospel, but they don't have the privileges of church membership. Now, what are the goals of doing this? I think in our day and age, this seems pretty, um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the remnant of a bygone age. So what are the goals for, for practicing this, Ashley? Exactly. And that's huge. Discipline for repentance. You'll notice the end, at the end of question answer 85, we confess such persons when promising and demonstrating genuine reform are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Ch uh, Christian discipline, church discipline, is uh, categorically different than civil discipline. Civil discipline is punitive in nature. Who cares? You know, if you murder someone, who cares if you're, you're repentant? You still have a punishment to serve. And that's good. We want justice. But the church does not exercise punitive discipline. It's restorative discipline. So it's discipline until repentance is produced. And once repentance is, is, is produced, they're fully restored. Right before Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus is presented as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to restore the one wandering sheep. That's the heart of church discipline, leaving the 99 to go after the one wandering sheep. And so that, that point of, of, of discipline being restorative, being all about repentance, is so, so important. Because when we think about discipline in our ordinary lives, we think of punitive discipline. You know, boys and girls, when you do something wrong, even if you're repentant, you usually have consequences that you need to serve that your parents give you. You're grounded. You have 
uh, privileges taken away, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and part of that is, is, is you're given punishments because you have broken rules. Well, in the church, if there's repentance, the church is not there to punish sinners. Um, and so in this sense, it's really an act of love in pursuing those who are, who are wandering. What other, what other goals, what other reasons do we have for, for doing this besides that it's in Scripture? Rachel? Right. Exactly. So care, care for the church, care for individuals. Um, I mean, we care for the person who is, who, who ultimately is wandering because we know the, the path that they're pursuing is not good for their soul. It's not good for them. It's generally not good for the people around them too. So we're caring for other people who might be affected by this person's sin. Uh, so that's a huge, a huge, huge reason, uh, care for the body. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, which is another big church discipline passage where someone's committing gross sexual immorality. In that passage, Paul is saying, yeah, skip the first two steps. Go straight to the church. This is such a gross public sin that you need to do something about it. And there he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's what happens if, 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 if the church allows gross sin, uh, heretical views just to persist within a body, it has consequences on, on the church. Another goal or reason would be God's glory and Christ's reputation. God cares about his reputation, the reputation of his church. And again, when we allow gross public sins or uh, heretical views to persist, it damages the reputation of Christ. And, and therefore, we are called to care about the glory of God and um, the reputation of the body of Christ here on earth. I'd like to share just a brief quote with you. The, the author of this catechism in the primary author of this catechism in his commentary on these question and answers very helpfully tells us that uh, tells us this Christ has given to the church the power of excommunication not for the destruction of the sinner but for his edification and salvation and he goes on to say how the purpose of discipline is not to establish the sovereignty or tyranny of a minister or of elders and he goes on to say the reason why it's not, it's not given to establish the sovereignty or tyranny of a consistory is because elders and pastors submit themselves to this very same discipline. You know, one of the reasons why we, we, we care so much about belonging to a federation or denomination of churches is when you as a member submit to the, 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 uh, to the elders' discipline, you know that I as a pastor... Elder Witt, Elder Gilbert, us as a consistory are also submitting to the discipline of the broader church. And so there's a mutual oversight that's really healthy that guards against tyranny and this absolute sovereignty of any individual person or any individual body. So there's a lot of wisdom in that federative relationship that we, we enjoy as a uh, URC church. Uh, one of the main questions that usually comes up when we think about this idea of discipline is, well, what sin? Or what sins will warrant excommunication? Now, generally, that's not a good, it's not, it's not a good idea to start making a list. Actually, that's a bad idea to do that. Uh, but really, you could boil it down to one sin. It's the sin of unrepentance. 
But it's not just any old unrepentance, because when we hear that, there's a sense in which we all constantly live in unrepentance. If you think about Psalm 32, we all are silent, meaning we fail to confess our sins, we harbor sin in our hearts. And that's part of what it means to have a sin nature. And so it's unrepentance that's severe enough that it throws, it, it causes us to question one's profession of faith. So it's, it's unrepentance that's severe enough that causes us to question one's profession of faith. So the second key is, again, church discipline. Discipline which leads to repentance. I love how question answer 83 puts it. Uh, discipline towards repentance. Now, I mentioned I'd like to briefly conclude by, by uh, connecting this to church membership. Again, church membership is something that most churches in our day and age don't practice, uh, but it's something that we, we care a lot about, and we do this out of conviction. And church membership is really subsumed under the keys of the kingdom. So that first key, which says that the church has the authority and the duty to preach the gospel, well, connected to that is that the church also has the authority and the duty to affirm and recognize one's profession of faith. So again, pastors and elders are stewards in the household of God, and they're called not just to announce the gospel, to announce the gospel, but also to affirm and recognize one's profession of faith. And so us as individuals, we are called not just to individually profess our faith as some private experience, but we are called to have our faith vetted, tested, and approved by the local church. This is part of the authority that Christ has given to the church. Uh, we should desire the affirmation of the church upon our, pro our profession of faith. And so if you are a formal member of a church, if you're a formal member of Gig Harbor URC, then you have been formally invited to come to the Lord's table. And that should carry some weight to you. You may remember that in the form that I read before the Lord's Supper, there's a phrase in there that says, do not allow the weakness of your faith or your fail failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it was given to you because of your weakness and because of your failures in order to feed you with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Just as the right to come to the table is not an individual experience, uh, but you need to be admitted by elders as we saw last week, so too, Excommunication is not an individual experience. That's something that belongs to the church, to the consistory. And so if you come uh, uh, on Sunday and you feel weak, you feel like a lousy sinner, remember that your elders are inviting you to partake of the body and blood. And that should carry some weight. Well, we also uh, know that the church, if the church has the right to affirm one's profession of faith, uh, according to that second key, the church also has the right to uh, take that affirmation away, which really is what church discipline is. Church discipline is not us trying to read people's hearts, but rather it's saying we no longer can affirm your profession of faith, meaning we don't have confidence in the, in the legitimacy of that profession. We're not saying that that person's not saved. They very easily could be. Uh, we're not making any um, de facto declaration that of their eternal status, but we're just saying based on their fruit, uh, we can't make that affirmation. So you can see it's very hard to exercise church discipline if there's not the practice of membership. Because if one's profession of faith has not been affirmed, if they have not been uh, formally invited to the Lord's table, then how can the church take away that affirmation 
and then disinvite them if they haven't been affirmed and invited in the first place. So you can see that that, that second key hangs upon the practice of, of church membership. And so church membership is really uh, an application of the keys of the kingdom. Christ gave to the church authority, authority to affirm professions of faith and authority to remove that affirmation, authority to invite people to the table, and authority to, to revoke that invitation. And so the reason why you'll notice here at Gig Harbor, when I fence the table, we fence it really according to biblical church membership. And it's not just membership in our church or membership in the URC or even membership in another Reformed Presbyterian church. It's, it's, it's membership in any true church. And so really we're just saying that if you come to the table as a visitor, you need to be under the oversight of elders because elders are the stewards of the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a meal, a kingdom meal. It's for those who have entered the gate of the kingdom and have been affirmed in that status by elders in a local church, which is why it's so important that um, um, we practice uh, church uh, membership in, in connection to, to the supper. And I think a lot of people in our day and age, we don't like, we don't like this doctrine. This is not a popular doctrine. And I think there's a reason why most evangelical Christians don't know what the keys of the kingdom are. They don't hear about it. It's not preached about. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not given really any airtime in, in most churches. And the reason why we don't like it is because we live in an individualistic age. We live in an age in which Christians see themselves as self-feeders, in which Christians see the church as a, congrega a congregation of individual self-feeders coming together just for, for uh, social purposes. And we're tempted then to, to create the church in the image of this dominant cultural mindset. And this is what the, the church did in the early uh, Middle Ages. When they developed this elaborate hierarchical system of bishops and, and ultimately the pope, they were really stealing a play out of the, the playbook of the Roman Empire. And we're tempted to do that when it comes to modern-day America. We want to make the church a replica of this dominant, autonomous, individualistic mindset that we see rampant in, in our country. But we have to come back to Scripture and realize Christ gave to the church these keys. Christ has employed stewards in his church with authority. And many people have experienced hardship, abuse in other churches, uh, and Christ hates that. He sympathizes with, uh, with you in those hardships. Uh, but yet, our reaction should not be to make the church merely a social club. We are not a fundamentalist church. Fundamentalist churches confuse stewardship with mastery. They don't recognize the inherent limitations of the church's authority. We are not claiming to be a master. We're claiming to be stewards and ambassadors. And therefore, we exercise a limited authority, but a real authority. Uh, that we all are called to submit to. And so this uh, concludes the grace section. And next time we're together, we will uh, start the gratitude section, which is how do we respond? How do we respond to this gracious gospel that we have received in Jesus Christ?